This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I am Martine Powers. It's Friday, September 20th. Today, why it's so hard for federal money to reach communities fighting the opioid crisis. And the story of what happened to Michael Vick's dogs. The prescription drug, heroin, and fentanyl epidemic is a human tragedy unfolding every day in homes, in alleyways, in bathrooms, the back seats of cars in nearly every city and town of our country. That's Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. And last year, in mid-September, he delivered this speech on the floor of the Senate. Preliminary estimates indicate that opioid overdoses claimed an estimated 49,000 lives just last year, including nearly 2,000 people in Massachusetts. That's more than gun violence. That's more than car accidents. And about three-quarters of those deaths in Massachusetts were the result of a powerful synthetic opioid called fentanyl. So when we talk about the opioid crisis today, we're really talking about the fentanyl crisis. Fentanyl is the driver of drug overdose deaths. That's Katie Zesma. She's an investigative reporter who writes about fentanyl. Senator Markey first learned about fentanyl in 2014, making him one of the first members of Congress to learn about what fentanyl was. And he spent years after that trying to sound the alarm. And especially among his colleagues in Congress, it was really hard to get people to care. They just didn't pay attention to it. The opioid epidemic is the deadliest drug overdose crisis in American history. So Senator Markey has essentially been giving the same speech for years. Ted Muldoon is a producer for Post Reports, and he's been following Katie for this story. Like, here he is in February 2015. The state of Massachusetts is being ravaged by... Then again in February 2016. And it's time for us to come together. March 2016. Congress must step up. May 2016. Illicit fentanyl. 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 July 2016. We are being overwhelmed. August 2016. We need the money for treatment. January. Fentanyl. March. Fentanyl. December 2017. Fentanyl is a synthetic... Senator Markey wasn't alone in trying to ring the alarm on fentanyl. There's a small group of members of Congress who were also trying to raise awareness of this threat that they were seeing in their districts. They included Senators Rob Portman from Ohio. Fentanyl is a synthetic heroin. It's a growing problem in my state of Ohio. Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. The fentanyl that is on the streets in Pennsylvania and across America. Now former Senator Kelly Ayotte of New Hampshire. Right now in New Hampshire, heroin, sometimes combined with a very powerful synthetic drug called fentanyl. The small group of people in Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, they were giving these speeches over and over and over. And yet, every time they go back to their districts, this is what they would hear. Seven eight recorded line. What is the address of your emergency? Taunton, Mass. Please, quick, please. My daughter's either overdosing or had a seizure. She's unconscious. My friend, my friend is unconscious. My neighbor, his whole face is blue. Nine one one, the emergency. Um, somebody's uh, locked himself in the bathroom. Why do you think they overdosed? She's got a needle. 
All of these calls are just from one city in southeast Massachusetts. It's called Totten. It's the place where Senator Markey first learned about fentanyl. They're also all just from one random month in early 2018. Pick any other month, and you'll find more of the same. 911, what's the location of your emergency? My stepdad just passed out. How old are you? I'm 12 years old. I'm like the overdose. Do you know how to do CPR? I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. I need you to take both of your hands, okay? Put one on top of the other, okay? Yeah. And I need you to push down hard and fast, okay? I'm going to help yeah. you through it, okay? Start doing it. Pump, pump, pump. Listen, I need you to keep going then. Keep going. Pump, 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 pump. Come on, the heart is fast, okay? I want you to get, I want you to be As calls like these came in month after month, year after year, in towns all over Massachusetts, there's Ed Markey on the floor of the Senate trying to make his colleagues understand just how bad things have gotten on the ground. And they weren't listening. Senator Markey spent years talking about fentanyl. So the big question is, why did it take so long for Congress to actually do something? And what we found was that Congress was just extremely slow. By 2018, Congress, after years of inaction, had finally passed three opioid packages to deal with the opioid crisis. They freed up billions of dollars to go to communities that have been affected more money to treatment programs, to prevention programs, into states to use as they see fit. But, you know, the wheels of bureaucracy turn really, really slowly, and it takes a long time for this money to actually get on the ground. And places are really just starting to see the influx of the money now. So we wanted to go and, and see what it's doing and if it's actually helping or not. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm good. Is somebody uh, checking in your car phone? Uh, not yet. No. Okay. So can you tell me where we are? So we're going to be going to Taunton, Massachusetts. Taunton is a city that's about 45 minutes from Boston, and it's about half an hour from Providence. So it's you know it's pretty centrally located from these major places, but it just feels very far away from them. Yeah, we're kind of on this road into town. There's a river on my left, a lot of trees. You know, you kind of go get off the highway and you go down this kind of two-lane road and slight left to stay on Taunton Green. Welcome to Taunton. All of a sudden you're in the center of town and it's very much like a classic New England town. It has gorgeous architecture. There's some beautiful homes though. Yeah, no, definitely. These are really pretty houses. Beautiful courthouse building. You can tell there used to be money here. Yeah. But then you start to look a little bit more and you see that a couple of vacant storefronts here. This is a town that has seen better days. Taunton is an old industrial city. The time, 1906. The place, Taunton, Massachusetts. It's actually known for being the silver capital of America. Assignment to create a magnificent new silver pattern. Reed and Barton, which is a big silver company. I remember it because my grandmother used to get these like silver bells for the Christmas tree every year and put them on it. And they were Reed and Barton. They were headquartered in Taunton. Reed and Barton closed and a lot of these industries closed, you know, curtain makers and that sort of thing. And, and it was just kind of hollowed out. And with that came loss of jobs, loss of opportunity. So where are we going like now? Locked and loaded. We are going to the Church of All Nations. It's a Baptist church in Taunton. 
and we're going to meet with a woman who runs recovery meetings here. My name is Marsha Richardson, and I'm a social worker. So Marsha Richardson runs a recovery ministry at the Baptist Church of All Nations. Just trying to help with this epidemic. Which is the church where Ed Markey first heard the word fentanyl. So you're from Taunton. I am. So tell me a little bit about the city. I mean, it's a diverse city, working class people, really. You know, it's a smaller community in some way, so people know one another. And tell me a little about how it's changed or, or not changed. Mm, it's different. Not as safe as it was. So Taunton has really seen the progression that everywhere across the country has seen. There were people using heroin, but it wasn't like it is now where, just my opinion, prescription drugs really came on board and you were seeing different segments of the population being impacted by it. Athletes, kids get a prescription for pain, and next thing you know, short amount of time, they're on the street looking for drugs, and, and the next thing you know, it's heroin. And, you know, they used heroin for a few years, and then the cartels realized it was much more lucrative to start cutting the heroin with illicit fentanyl, and that's where we got today. You didn't hear about somebody overdosing every single day, or numerous people every single day. And if they did, they weren't dying. Once fentanyl comes onto the scene, overdosing in Taunton looks like death. It is no longer reviving people, it is finding people who are dead. Yeah, you don't really have that opportunity. It's it's immediate. You know, it's a very, very small amount, and people are just dying. So it's just the loss and the impact on people's, you know, their families, you know, their lives. It's just that that's the major thing. People are dying. They don't have a chance of recovery. You know, in the past, with pills and, and even with heroin, people who were addicted could have the chance to try to recover it. You know, you often don't go into recovery the first time. It takes a couple of tries. It's a disease of the brain. And it if people were using drugs while they were figuring that out, they had a little bit of time. Now with fentanyl, every time you use, there's a chance that it could just kill you. With the arrival of fentanyl in places like Taunton and places all around the country, the need for treatment is so much more urgent because people are are dying. They're not surviving anymore. They're dying when they use these drugs. Patty, is this where all the obituary letters are, or is it in this one? Oh. Uh, so these are all families that have lost their kids? We've condensed it to one drawer here, but we have boxes full of them because we move them year by year. We're at Learn to Cope, which is an organization based in Taunton. Seeing on the map how many chapters you guys have. Yeah. All over the place. So we're heading to Kennebunk, Maine. Oh, wow. Wow. Founded by a woman named Joanne Peterson. And what it really does is help people whose family members and loved ones are suffering through addiction. Every single day, she gets calls from parents who have you know, children who overdosed or a someone that they love and that they care about and they don't know what to do. We've got a couple people here. So we walked into the back room, which is actually Joanne's office. Hi. How's it going? Hi. 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 Hi.
And we met Laurie Palazzi Gonsalves and Judy Gilmore. Well, my name is Laurie Palazzi Gonsalves, and my son Corey was a varsity athlete, and he was a National Honor Society student. Um, Laurie's son was a pitcher, and he hurt himself. He had shoulder surgery on his pitching arm. He hurt his pitching arm when he was a junior in high school, and he had surgery, and he was prescribed Percocet. And got addicted, and he spiraled into a heroin problem, and he, he had an overdose. In July of 2013, and he suffered an anoxic brain injury. He went about two and a half to three minutes without breathing. And he survived, but he has severe brain damage. Now what we do is we go out to schools and um, other groups, and we talk to kids and share our history, just in the hopes of helping other people. So we just do a lot of advocacy work. And my name is Judy Gilmore, and I live in Taunton, Massachusetts. My first son was battling for uh, like 10 years. We were in and out, in and out, in and out, waiting for beds and rehabs and detoxes, and, and it tore the family apart. Judy Gilmore, she's a social worker. She had four sons, and two of them are dead from opioid overdoses. You're, you're a social worker? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I save people, mm-hmm. but not my sons. The women just had the, the worst time trying to find treatment for their sons. They, they couldn't do it. They tried and they tried and they spent, you know, hours and hours and hours each day and week on the phone just trying to help their children and they couldn't. There's nothing worse than having a child that has an addiction problem and they're sitting with you and they say, yes, I want to go get help. And you are on the phone crying like, please. And, and they're like, we don't have a bed. We don't have a bed. Call back. Check back in the morning. Experts say that for many people who are in the throes of addiction, they need to stay in a long-term treatment facility in order to get better. Most of those facilities have 28-day stays, but they're incredibly hard to get into. The treatment infrastructure is so fractured, and there are just so few beds compared to the people who need them. So here in places like Taunton, people have to go to Fall River, which is about 20 minutes away, just to even start that process. And, you know, experts say that's just not conducive to the disease. With addiction, and when they tell you they're ready, you got to strike while the iron's hot. Because tomorrow morning, they might go, I'm not, no, I'm not going, I don't want to go. They were at the mercy of this system that just doesn't have the capacity. You know, they were told they needed they needed to wait or their insurance wouldn't take it. And, you know, especially for, for Judy, one of her sons, he was on a waiting list. He was waiting and waiting and waiting, and, you know, he was just almost there. He was beautiful days, and he had been, in, he just loved to be outside and had his headphones on. And and right before he went in, he met up with a friend. And then Jay walked by me and went into the bathroom, and his phone kept ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. I said, what is wrong? Why don't he answer his phone? You know, it kept ringing and ringing and ringing, and I heard a bang. And then I went into the bathroom, and he was on the floor, and his face was purple. So I was doing CPR, and they came, and and we went to the hospital, and we weren't there too long, and um, they came in and and told us that he had died, Um, and it was fentanyl. I don't think the government is doing nearly enough, because they're not here down in the trenches hearing from the families. They're not looking at, that's somebody's kid. Mm -hmm. People are losing their kids, like... Aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings, they're losing their loved ones. Parents are burying their kids every day in this country. Like, why is that not important? I feel like, does one of these congressmen have to lose one of their kids? Do, Do they have to lose one of their grandkids? 
you know, in the Congress piece, they will say in Congress, well, we passed, you know, opioids bills, right? We passed them in 2016. We passed two. Um, we passed again in 2018 last year. Have you guys seen any tangible benefits from no, that? Nothing. No. Nothing. No. In theory, Taunton could be seeing money from one of these packages passed by Congress over the past couple of years. In 2016, they passed the 21st Century Cures Act, which covered a lot of public health issues, including opioids, and it doled out a billion dollars over two years in grant money. Congress also passed the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act in 2016. In 2018, there was a huge opioid package that passed that allocated billions of dollars to try to fight the epidemic. Money is supposed to fund treatment and recovery. The idea is to try to build out the treatment infrastructure a bit in the United States. So if they passed all this money, why aren't there any treatment centers in Taunton still? They just haven't been built there, you know? The infrastructure is not there. There was not an existing treatment center. Um, Oftentimes they they build out ones that already do exist in the region. But, you know, Taunton didn't have this huge drug problem before, and the infrastructure just didn't exist. Is there somebody we can call to find out? Yeah, we should call Nancy Paul from Star in Fall River, Massachusetts. She's the head of one of the nearest treatment facilities to Taunton. Well, I think generally most resources go to big cities. And in southeastern Mass, the cities are declining. Historically, a lot of this funding has gone to places with larger populations. So big cities would get more money because they have more people. But as we've seen this epidemic unfold, we've seen it really unfolding in in places that are a little more suburban, a little more rural. So it's being changed now to allocate on a proportional basis. And it seems as though you all are looked at more as a region, right? Bristol County, South, Southeastern Mass, rather than Fall River in Taunton in New Bedford. It's kind of like, we'll push this to this area and, you know, that will help alleviate the problem even if you drive 25 minutes or whatever it is. Right. And I think that shows a lack of understanding of the cities of Taunton and Fall River and New Bedford. Someone was just telling me it takes like two hours to go 20 miles on a bus from Fall River to New Bedford. Now, if you're sick and withdrawing, are you going to sit for two hours on a bus that has like 50 stops before you could get to my facility and change buses? You know, it's crazy. We need facilities in each city. How much money do you think it would cost to build out new treatment centers in these cities? Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to build one in the north end of the city. And I can tell you that the cost for a 43,000-square-foot facility is around 14 to $15 million. And I have raised five, over $5 million from local people to build this. But I am getting pushback from state legislator and Fall River's Office of Economic Development uh, that's now spun off. They have been totally against having a facility in Fall River. Why is that? What's their What's their reasoning? We don't want to import people from Taunton or New Bedford into Fall River to come into this facility. Despite the fact that fentanyl is killing so many people? Correct. Even though everyone knows that the fentanyl crisis and the opioid crisis is is raging, one thing that places are running into is that they don't want to build any more treatment facilities in their neighborhoods. It's a NIMBY issue. Have you guys seen any of the money from the packages that have passed either in 2016 or in 2018 yet? We are beginning to see more money. 
you know, I would say that the state of Massachusetts stepped up faster overall than the federal government. But we still have a huge problem. And there's not enough money, and there's not enough staff, and there are not enough facilities. My detox is in an old TB hospital that was shut down in the 50s. I cannot get the resources to build a new one from federal grants or state grants. Nobody will touch facilities. Really? Why not? Because I think... I think nobody thinks outside the box. I think it's it won't fit a two-year election cycle. Once you build it, you have to continue to pay the resources to fund it. Nancy's right about that. The way that Congress gives out money is in two-year increments. So most places who are getting it don't know if they're going to continue to get it after it's done. So they don't really have the ability to build long-term facilities or long-term programs because they don't know how long the money is going to keep coming for. It's clear after going to Taunton that people there feel as though they don't have the money that they need to fight this problem and what they have gotten hasn't been adequate. Nancy said it would take $15 million to build out one treatment facility in one city in southeastern Massachusetts. So imagine what it would take to replicate that across the country. For people like Senator Markey, who have spent years fighting this problem, it's clear to them that more money is needed and more resources are needed and and just more heft needs to be put behind an effort to fight this epidemic. Right now, Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Elijah Cummings, they proposed a package that would allocate $100 billion over 10 years to fight the opioid crisis. Senator Warren and I introduced the CARE Act in April. It would provide funding as well as flexibility to enable hard-hit communities. It has not gone anywhere yet. They have not been able to get Republican co-sponsors. They've not been able to get a ton of Democratic buy-in either. And the concern is that now that these three opioid packages have passed, that this is going to be it that Congress will say, you know what, we did our job, we allocated money toward this problem, and that's it. Let's move on to the next issue. I have been around for many, many years. I've worked in this field for 42 years. And my concern is, you know, we've been talking about this opioid epidemic for the last, I don't know, four years now. This is a long cycle for people to be talking about it, and I keep worrying that they're going to move on to the next thing. Uh, and that our people, once again, will be left behind without it being dealt with. And uh, I fully expect it to happen again. Katie Zesma is a reporter for The Post. Ted Muldoon is a producer for Post Reports. This story was also reported by Colby Ickowitz. You can find a link to their full story at postreports.com. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? 
Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity personalized planning and advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. So I remember when it happened, I would have been in middle school and it was something that interested me. And, and I kind of followed the dogs very loosely for the last 12 years or so. That's Emily Giambalvo. She is a sports reporter for The Post. Yeah, when I'm not writing about dogs, I I usually cover college sports. Today's latest from the Michael Vick dogfighting case. Vick is on his own to cut a deal or face trial on federal charges. So in 2007, Michael Vick was a star NFL quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons. And it was discovered that he was also running an illegal dogfighting ring down in southeastern Virginia. These are serious crimes. They are so abhorrent to the American people. And Vic and his cohorts were apparently testing animals for fighting purposes. And when those animals didn't pass the test, they were put in water and then electrocuted. They were picked up by their legs and slammed against the ground. Uh, They were hung. I mean, this is just horrific stuff. He pleaded guilty in 2007 to running this illegal dogfighting ring, and he was suspended from the NFL, and he, he went to jail. I accept the responsibility for my actions and what I did, and now I have to pay the consequences for it. So Michael Vick spent about a year and a half in prison, and then he ultimately returned to the NFL. But what happened to the dogs? About 50 dogs were seized. And at the time, the norm was that there would be the legal proceedings and then the dogs would be killed. Their role was to provide evidence in a case. The phrase that I kept hearing was, they're bred to be fight dogs. They can't rebound because this is just who they are. And then this time, some of these major organizations spoke out and thought, you know what, like, why don't we see? Like, let's just try and see if these dogs could be pets. So they knew if we change this and we do it in this case in a public way, then we could really change how dogs from Fight Bus are handled in the future. They thought, okay, we've got about, what, 50 dogs? Man, if we could save 10, if we could save five, like that would be awesome. I, I don't know if anyone was quite expecting that at the end of these evaluations, they would say, okay, 47 of the 48, like time to go home. So almost all these dogs were ultimately deemed fit to live out their days either in sanctuaries or in people's homes. But what you didn't know was where exactly they were. Yeah, because even talking to these adopters, these rescue organizations, they don't know. I mean, none of them know how many are still alive. They don't know what happened because they spread across the country. Some of them had Facebook pages with half a million followers But some of them just went off into the world and they're like, you know what? Just ended up becoming a regular dog. You're a regular dog. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to track them down was I felt like to have a story about legacy and we're 12 years out and they're starting to die, we need to know how many are alive. And So you figure that out. Yes. Because I'm like, how is the Washington Post going to let me publish a story if we only have an estimate? And then just first, a couple quick, like, biographical information about Zippy. When, when did you get her? And then when did you bring Leo home? Do you happen to remember the month and year? The month and year that you brought Iggy home? Oh, um, yeah, it was, um... It was, uh, 
January, no, it was November of 2007, I believe. Let's see, I'd have to do the math. So, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So, this is the spreadsheet. Oh, my gosh. This is an incredibly comprehensive spreadsheet. So, it starts with their name. H-A-R-R-I-E-T? Yes, correct. Okay. And do you prefer it to be Harriet or Tubbs? Or do you have any prep? What would you prefer? Uh, either or it's fine. Harriet's fine. Harriet, okay, okay. The date that they ended up in in a home, I guess. So it was a really special day that she arrived here on Valentine's Day. The date that they died, if they're no longer alive, their adopted name. So that's where the name came from, Zippy, because she okay. just zip through the house. Their adopted town. Uh, Rochester, Minnesota. Okay. How many man hours do you think went into this? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> really are number 47 of 47. And, and Johnny's still alive, correct? Yeah. Okay, okay. He's laying on my foot right now. <laughs> okay. And every story was different. Like, it didn't get boring to me. When I saw Tettles, I was like, oh, he looks perfect. Tettles is really interesting. So Tettles is in a 2004 photo shoot picture with Michael Vick. He was brought home July 2008. So when he came... Um, he was afraid of everything. He was afraid of his shadow. Yeah. And it took him a long time to overcome it. I always say that he didn't always show us, you know, who he was. And eventually he did. Yeah. He was a big marshmallow. And then we have Maya. Yeah, papaya. <laughs> Maya. I met Maya. Dog can be scary. So yeah. a lot of people were actually really scared of her, and I'm like, Aww. she's just scared, you know. This yeah. was this was back in the right. in Virginia. Um, she lived with Curly, who's like her best friend, and he's another Vic dog. Hey, hey, Curly. Hi, you're so sweet. Georgia was one who who stuck with me. I used to sing to her and, and on our walks and. She would just look up at me. It was her, those adoring, you know, soulful eyes. And she seemed to then be at her happiest when she was out walking and all. Georgia was adopted by Amy Egger, who lives in Arlington. And she was one of the champion fighters. So Georgia, most people say, you know, probably endured a lot. I just loved her so much. And I just... Despite all she endured and her broken tail and her broken jaw and all that, you know, her, her, her spirit couldn't be broken. And I always feel that that spirit will always be with me, yeah. her beautiful, unbreakable spirit. How many of these dogs are still alive now? Eleven are still alive. So. Eleven of the 47 that ended up. Yes. And actually, I met six of the dogs in the process of reporting the story. And two of those have died. They're they're getting up there, and there's this like acute awareness among the adopters and the rescue organizations that they are very soon approaching a day where these dogs aren't going to be alive anymore. What do you think that means? I think it means that instead they're going to have to let them survive through the change they sparked. Because these dogs really did change things. You know, now, if, if there's a fight bus, the dogs are evaluated. Before the Vic case, that never happened. So I think it gives them some comfort in knowing all of these dogs, hundreds and hundreds of dogs, are alive um, because of what these dogs did. Emily Giambavo is a sports reporter for The Post. 
For photos and more information about all 47 dogs, go to postreports.com. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Renny Svernovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The post-director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.